So we went through, you know, what is biblical counseling. Uh, we have, I've said something about psychotherapy and, um, haven't said much about critique of biblical counseling, but I'll kind of inject things in there. Uh, my main thing has been really to uh, just say that, that uh, you can have a biblical counselor who's bad at doing it, you know. So, and I've known and heard of, of bad biblical counselors. Usually they get legalistic. You know, usually it's just they use the Bible as a club. <laughs> like, do this. Um, and uh, instead of understanding, you know, where a person's at, where they, uh, emotions may be at, their own spiritual growth, uh, and speaking the truth in love, you know. Then we, uh, we've looked at the soul, the heart, the mind, the will. I'm going to say a little bit more about the will right now. We have looked at the fall and its effects. I do want to say something about the emotions, uh, today, and then we're going to look at people as individuals. Um, and try to get down all of that first page uh, today. And I might even get into, and I hope, in fact, to get into uh, something to do with the authority of Scripture today, because that, of course, is, is vital. All right. I think we're about ready to start here. <clears throat> So let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Father, I pray that you would indeed bless us this evening, bless any that are late and uh, uh, keep them safe on the roads. I ask, dear Lord, that, um, Lord, you would bless our time together, incline our hearts to your word and to wisdom and to the fear of you. Help us to see, Lord, the high calling that we have in Christ and how your word, being truth, can be applied to our lives and to the lives of other believers to help them in the running the race in this life, and a life that can be very difficult. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help use this information to help us Help others biblically. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start off here with a little bit more about the relationship of the character and the will. Remember that last week I said that a person's character uh, will incline their will. That kind of only makes sense, doesn't it? If a person has, has grown up learning to be dishonest or learning to be dis- lascivious or learning uh, to, you know, be violent or angry or take people for granted or, you know, just proud and arrogant and putting themselves first all the time, uh, controlling, whatever it might be, if they've been kind of programmed themselves that way and if they're their own... Uh, mental faculties, their ways of thinking, their ways of operating, because we're all different, 
we we all have these different traits are um, inclined to one sin or another sin, then if we feed that sin, if we continue to be like that, then it doesn't take very long for people who know us to be able to predict, if they've got any common sense, what we may do in any given situation, at least where that uh, sin is involved. Um, and it's not just it's not just sin as well. It's just the way a person's emotional makeup is. You can sometimes predict, you know, if they hear this news at this time, it's gonna, they're just gonna fall apart. Yes, you can, you can predict. Where another person, yeah, they'll be able to take it. Okay? So that's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm talking about here. And so therefore the character, the shape of character is extremely important, which means that as a counselor, we've got to try to establish what kind of character we're dealing with. Now, here I'm talking about other Christians or professing Christians, okay? I'm going to kind of narrow it to that. This also works to an extent with unbelievers, but remember that an unbeliever is not under the authority of Scripture. They are an unbeliever, and an unbeliever uh, may choose, in fact, almost always will choose to be completely independent of that. So it's only, they'll only be able to be helped to the extent that they think the scripture's useful. But at the same time, you can use the Bible and use that counseling, of course, to introduce them to the gospel. You know, this, I'm a biblical counselor and I use the Bible because I believe it's the word of God. God is our creator. He knows us better than anybody else knows us, better than we know ourselves. Uh, we are messed up usually because of our sin. You explain what sin is. But the good news is that God loves us anyway, and we talk about Jesus and so on. And we do press the claims of Jesus um, to, to people that we counsel, if they're unbelievers. But for now, we'll just talk about uh, believers. We'll talk about those who come to us and they claim to be Christian. They may not be Christians. Okay? They may not be Christians, but if they come in and they claim to be a Christian, we maybe even know them as being members of our church or another church, uh, we should at least, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt and start off in that direction. It will start to become quite evident uh, whether they are a an unbeliever who just knows a bunch, a bunch of church jargon or b a uh, what the bible calls a carnal christian in 1st corinthians chapter 3 a carnal christian they are babyish they're they're carnally minded they're not mature in any way their thoughts really tend towards evaluating uh, god and the world themselves on a, a worldly basis instead of a scriptural basis and it's hard to get them to uh, pay attention to the bible okay so you get those people but you have a person who comes to you and they're a christian okay 
Just because they're a Christian, as you know very well, does not mean that their character is fantastic. Does not mean that automatically when you hear that they're a Christian, oh, you know, let me write a letter of recommendation for you. No, you want to know something about their character. Okay, so some of your questions, which you're just asking them, uh, you know, questions about their background, uh, asking them about their job, asking them about their friends, asking about their parents and brothers and sisters and how they get along with different people, you know, how long have they been at the church that they're at, where were they before that, those kinds of things. Just trying to get to know them, letting them talk. Uh, you will start to get, as you note down some of the answers, you'll start to get an idea of what kind of character you're dealing with. Okay, doesn't mean you judge them or prejudge them on that, but but you just you start to get an impression of things, and you must always have this in mind. Okay, what kind of a character am I dealing with? Okay, because um, when you give homework and when you give um, uh, admonition. You know, some people, if you think, if you detect that there's a great deal of pride, and it doesn't take long to, to find a proud person. A proud person is always going to be talking about themselves. Okay? So if you find somebody, maybe a nice person, but they're always talking about themselves, you're going to have to admonish them in that area. Do you see? What I've heard about, you're always talking about yourself. You know? If you, uh, another kind of a person is, is somebody who just controls the, the conversation all the time. So that they won't, like, stand still to let you say anything. Okay? You'll say a few things and then they'll try and control the conversation. And after a while, you're gonna have to say, well, okay, I've heard enough from you, and you've come to, to me, and now I need to talk to you some of these words of, of admonishment. Okay? Um, again, from their responses to that, you'll see whether, you know, you can, well, how far you're going to have to go, <laughs> or whether it's even, in some cases, whether you even think they're going to come back again, okay? Because some of them will not, when you touch that sensitive spot, um, and you see that uh, you're getting at their, their heart, their character, you are... Uh, they're just not going to want to let you in sometimes. And that's okay. That's okay because you're being faithful. Okay? Your job as a biblical counselor, if they choose not to come back or if they choose to take offense, um, that's fine. Okay? If they take offense and they come back, great. That's the fruit of the Spirit perhaps in their life. And that's good. Maybe they took offense, but they thought it over, they came back, here they are again. Okay, you think, well, okay, maybe I'll be able to work with this person. Um, if a person is uh, comes to you, uh, you know, that, say as a lady and gentleman, of course, always. If there is a lady, you're counseling a lady. There must always be another person who is a witness to that conversation. Okay, who's reliable and can keep the mouth shut and so on and so forth. Preferably, your wife or um, you know somebody that you absolutely trust in that position. But that should go without saying, <laughs> but it doesn't, unfortunately. 
and with a lot of, of pastoral counseling. It should. But if, if you're counseling a woman and, uh, you know, she's crying all the time and, uh, every time she's saying something, she breaks down in tears and so on. Obviously, you need to be careful and go slowly and take careful steps in the things that you say and the way that you are dealing with her. You don't want to upset her even more, you know. Um, but at the same time, you don't also want her to want to encourage self-pity in her. Okay? So it's, in, it's important that, that you, you understand where you de- what you're dealing with here. Uh, I should say something else also on this, and that is please don't think uh, when you counsel somebody that, and, and even another Christian, and uh, you know their, their lives are all messed up and their emotions are all messed up and so on, don't think that it's always this calm, um, just kind of genteel, conversation between two people. Okay? It's not always. Sometimes they can get mad at you. Okay? Sometimes they can accuse you of being insensitive or, you know, well, that's none of your business. You're just kind of trying to find out information that you, you know, they don't want to talk about it and so on. And they might get annoyed when you admonish them. When you point to a scripture and say, well, you know, this is what I want you to do. They might say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean that you want me to go to the book of Proverbs and you want to, to, uh, me to study it about the wise person and the fool? Are you, are you implying that I'm a fool? To which you might say, well, uh, I think that you're not wise. I think that you're doing foolish things, but I think you need to understand what a wise person is and what a foolish person is. Okay? So do I. So does everybody, of course. So, anyway, with that said, a person's character has to be, you have to be aware of it all the time when you're dealing with, uh, with a person. Okay? If there are some people, that they will come, you'll sit down and they'll start talking to you and you might think, I don't know if I trust this person. There's something fake about them. Okay? Some people are better at judging that than others. Okay? And I'll say something more later on in the course about intuition. Okay? But, uh, and discernment, which is very important. But, but, uh, I think I'm pretty good at judging people, you know, if I if I think there's something about this person, I'm usually always right. Usually always right. I'm usually right. Not always in my grammar, but I'm usually right, okay? Why? Because I'm, you know, there's some kind of great spiritual gift that I have. I don't think so. I just think that because of my interactions with people, my interactions with scripture and, and dealing with them for so long, you just get to know. You just, there's something you just get to know about dealing with people. Um, and that's, that's something that you must always, again, take notice of. If you have a feeling, 
maybe you can't put your finger on it, but there's something there, something in their character that I'm not sure what it is, but there's something there. Make a note of it. Just circle it. Make sure that you don't forget about it. Okay? These things are important because, you know, what you're trying to do is that you are, you are trying to apply Scripture where it's needed in their lives. Okay? And all of us need that. All of us need to repent in different parts of our lives. All of us need to um, see things about ourselves that we'd rather not see. So, remember the character of a person inclines their will. You make sense? But, I've got a question mark down here. And uh, that question mark is, uh, does this mean that it is um, 100% guaranteed that a person's will is predictable on the basis of their character? No, absolutely not. In fact, even from a common sense point of view, we know that because... Uh, we can, you know, when we raise kids, we, we might see an inclination, one of them to, you know, steal cookies or something. Um, another one may have an inclination just to be a peacemaker, but a, a peacemaker so that they don't get, you know, discovered or don't get the kind of punishment they would get otherwise, yes? Um, they don't, you know, have lesser consequences and so on. So we have that situation with different people, but it doesn't mean that we can predict absolutely how they're going to react. And it doesn't mean, even if we can predict how they're going to react, that when we admonish and put truth into that uh, situation, into that person, that they won't change. If we knew they won't, they would never change, there'd be no point in talking to them, would there? But we know when, when some people have spoken to us and said, hey, I've seen this in you, or you spoke kind of roughly there. You know, if there's any spirituality in us at all, we might, uh, we might say, I'm sorry, I, I you know, I didn't realize that. I'm, maybe I'm, I'm just, desensitized to that. Thank you for telling me. Our character may be used to, to speaking brusquely. That doesn't mean that we can't change. Uh, and, and this is the same in every situation. A, a person comes to you and they have a problem due to making unsound uh, decisions in their life. You can say, well, look, you did this, you did this, you did this. You can see where it led up to. So this is what you need to do. Do you do you understand that? Yes. And they start doing it. Just think about dieting. Okay? Just think about um you know a friend who has who has uh, let down another friend. Totally surprised that this friend has has maybe gossiped about you or, or so on. But you can mend that friendship because they can come to you and say, oh, I'm sorry, you know. And they can 
do the right thing. Even more so, that's the case with a Christian, and we know it because if we've read the New Testament, we know Paul is constantly admonishing us to do just that. Don't be worldly-minded. Okay? Make sure that that uh, you have a mind that's been renewed because you have put yourself on the altar, as it were, as a living sacrifice. You know, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Well, he's, he's, that's a blanket statement. It's not just to a certain type of Christian character. That's to all Christians. And all Christians can do it. You say, well, yeah, but, but I don't feel inclined to it. No, you don't. No Christian feels inclined to it, which is why Paul tells them to do it. He says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Well, why does he have to say that? Because we have a tendency to walk in the flesh, don't we? But we can be admonished to walk in the spirit and we can choose to do it. Remember that I said that our default is independence. And what the biblical counselor is trying to do is to get the independently minded Christian to be dependent upon God. To do that, they have to be willing to change, do you say? And they can. Might be more difficult with some people. Let's say that there's a... Um, an addiction, okay? I don't like really, really like the word addiction, but let's say that, that, that somebody's addicted to alcohol or something like that, okay? And so they're just used to it. Can they? Their will is to keep doing it. So they have, but their will can be changed. They can actually get out of character and use their will contrary to what they feel inclined to. So when I was, I, I started smoking when I was 13 and gave up smoking in my, I think, uh, 21. Okay, and I gave up smoking. By the time I, I gave up smoking, I was smoking 30 a day uh, of the untipped uh, variety. And just decided that uh, this is pointless, it's costing me a lot of money, it's bad for my health, uh, it makes me smell and my clothes smell, and I just don't want to do it anymore, you know? So I gave up smoking. Not easily. My inclination was to buy another pack, okay? But I gave up. The same with drinking. I gave up drinking. Okay, that was not an easy thing to do, but I did it in steps. I got those horrible non-alcoholic beverages, okay, and I made myself drink them. Okay, I made myself, if I'm going to go into a pub, I'm going to order the non-alcoholic, okay, stuff, and just sit there and make myself drink it, rather than a pint of Guinness, because I know if I, if I have a pint of Guinness, I'm going to go and get another pint of Guinness. And then because 
that's what I do. I will end up with four or five pints of Guinness at the end of the night, burn through my money if I do that every day of the week, and wake up with a hangover most nights as well. I've seen many rooms spinning. Many rooms. Usually the bathroom, different bathrooms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although uh, I've laid in, I've laid in, in many a bed as well and could, you know, just seem to be spinning round and round and round, you know. Um, so we're aware that we can choose against our inclinations. The will is not a slave to our character. And that's good news. Because that means we can admonish people to change. And they can change. But we do have to get them to will to change. So long as they don't think it's a big deal, they're not going to will to change. Okay? If I didn't think smoking was a big deal, I'm going to keep smoking. If a person doesn't think lusting after other women is a big deal, they're going to keep doing it. Okay? They're not going to look the other way. Remember Job says, "I, I made a covenant with my eyes. I will not look upon a maid. Okay? What does that mean? He means he's told himself, he has willed to tell himself that whenever I see a pretty girl, okay, who's not my wife, I'm I'm going to, I'll see her, can't avoid seeing her, but I'm going to look away. Do you see? That's the will. And the covenant that he's made with his eyes is because he has come to a position in his life where he said, okay, that, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to start lusting after another woman. That is wrong. It's ungodly. You see? And I can I can choose to look the other way. And I'm going to choose to look the other way. I made a, a kind of a, a unofficial covenant, but a kind of promise uh, to God uh, when I gave up smoking and uh, sorry, gave up drinking. I gave up smoking and I gave up drinking just shortly after I became a Christian. And uh, I said, I'm not going to touch this stuff again. I'm just not going to touch this stuff again. Okay? And I haven't. So you, you say, well, uh, are you saying that I should be like that? No. Not if you don't have a problem with it. But where you do have a problem, you might think about where is your will on this. At the moment, I'm working on myself um, with sugar. Okay, sugar. There's a that's a hard one uh, for me. And so I'm trying not to eat sugar. I'm also trying not to eat flour because I get this kind of skin stuff uh, going on with, and I think it may have something to do with flour. So I have to, I'm, I'm trying to get to that place where my will is absolutely um, going to decide. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. Even if I want to do it, I'm not going to do it. Okay? 
What about the temptation? Yeah, I'm going to get tempted to do it. And at the moment, by the way, I'm like 75% successful. So 25% of the time, my will loses out. When it comes to chocolate, it's probably (laughs) 50-50. Okay? So that's a real, that's a battle. uh, I'm not winning that one really very well. But you you understand here that um, what I'm talking about, all right? It's very important that you understand that you're dealing with the will. Unless you deal with a person's will and get them their will to change, you will not affect change, okay? You will not affect long-term change, and it's that that we're after. All right. Any questions on that? Yes. Um, I've come to a place where I recognize people seeing necessity. You know, uh, if they see something as necessary, then they're going to run toward that. How do you, I think it's too broad a question, but, you know, so many ways, how, how do you convince someone of the necessity, you know, to change what they're doing? You have to think about it. You have to yourself ponder it. Okay, give it some. You have to meditate a little bit on it, because if you if you don't think through it, you're not your your reasons for giving it up are going to be superficial. You know, it's not good enough to say to a person, you know, who um, I don't know. A person who's overeating is just a foodie, you know, just loves, loves food, but they, but it's, it's, um, if they don't stop, they're going to have a heart attack or whatever, or it's, it's making them depressed or whatever it might be. It's no good to say, Hey, it's bad for your health. <laughs> you can't do that. I mean, they already know that. And it's so general that it's not going to, really impact things, is it? So you have to get, you have to think about it in a way and and deal with it in a way where they start to see that this thing is, it's not just a, a bad thing, it's evil. It's evil. It's wrong. Do you see? It comes from a wicked heart. It comes from a sinful inclination. You need to stop. Yes? Now, see I'm being looked at, but let me explain what I mean. It might not be evil for another person who's not tempted by it. But it is for you because it's what's being used by your sinful nature and by the devil to bring you into bondage to sin. And some of you... Lots of guys, for example, are not chocoholics. Okay, I don't know what happened to me, but but that's usually ladies that have that problem. Okay, but but so lots of guys, I say, yeah, I just love chocolate. I don't, you know, it's really hard for me not to just gobble it all up, and they don't get it because they have no kind of inclination that way at all. But, all right, so it's not going to be a temptation to them, is it? But it is to me. So, you know, you have to deal with people 
as individuals. In fact, we may as well come to that part now. People are individuals. People are individuals. That means that one piece of advice or one admonition I wouldn't say it doesn't fit all, because it does. If it's right, it's right. But you have to tailor it to the individual. Okay? You have to tailor it to the individual. In Psalm 33, verse 13, down to verse 15, it says this, The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling he looks. On all the inhabitants of the earth, he fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Now, of course, in the context, uh, David is talking about the generality of mankind because it's a creation psalm. Yet at the same time, he mentions the individuality of those persons. And he says that God, who looks at the whole, also sees the individuals within the crowd. Okay? Because he has fashioned their hearts to be the individuals that they are. Now, if we reflect on that just for a minute, that's that's a wonderful thing, because our individuality... Uh, you know, our personality and so on, yes, skewed by sin, means that you know, God has created us the way that he wants us to be, which means that we fit somewhere within God's purpose, you see? Because he hasn't kind of just um, created us on a whim. He's thought through, okay, where does uh, Sandy Fuentes fit into you know, my plan, my my scheme in eternity. Do you see that? And the same for all of us. So he's he's made us individuals. Of course, we're fallen, which means that even though we have uh, our personalities, our individuality, we cannot say, oh, that's just me. That's just the way I am. That's just the way God's made me. More, uh, even more, we cannot say uh, that, oh, I'm just ADHD, or I'm bipolar, or I'm any one of these psychological, you know, traits and, and identifications and labels that are so popular. You know, I'm, I'm OCD. Um, I'm this way or that way. Okay, that doesn't wash with God. It doesn't wash. Might be an excuse you use. It might be an excuse that you bring up to uh, uh, another counselor, or maybe your your husband or your wife or whatever it might be. But it doesn't wash with God. Oh, I'm just this kind of a person. Well, stop being that kind of a person then, okay? Because what you're doing is wrong. That's the end of it, isn't it? What you're doing is wrong, so stop it. But another way of looking at this is that 
if we're counseling somebody, we must treat them as a God-created individual. Okay, They're not just a number. They're not somebody who has been mass-produced and one size fits all as far as, you know, your solutions and the way you're going to deal with them, the way you're going to listen to them. No, you must treat them like individuals. It was said of the apologist Francis Schaeffer that when you were in conversation with him that he was listening to you. He was focused on you. Okay? That's how we should be. Some of us are better listeners than others, okay? But we need to be focused on that person who's talking to us, listening to what they're telling us, um, looking for, you know, body language and things like this, but, but, but trying to enter into sympathetically with their issues. So people are individuals. If I can just read a little bit from uh, Alan Ross's commentary on this passage. Uh, he's an Old Testament scholar. By the way, if you want a fantastic commentary on the book of Psalms, uh, this one by Alan P. Ross would be it. This is volume one. There's three volumes. Um, but he says here that... Um, The verse says that he forms the heart of them all. The word usually means together or all-inclusive or all. It refers to individuals doing something or going somewhere together. It is sometimes used uh, just a synonym for all and is found in parallelism, that is, uh, you know, the way that, uh, that Jewish prose, uh, sorry, poetic verse is, uh, in different situations. So the verse may be interpreted to say, quote, he who forms the hearts of all, who considers all their works. Since the Lord is the sovereign creator of everyone, he knows the acts and intentions of them all. And since he created with a design, as the verb indicates, then his knowledge of the race he created is is evaluative. And furthermore, since the summary statement says the Lord loves righteousness and justice, verse 5, then the standard of this evaluative observation is to determine if people are righteous. Now, just let me unpack that just a a tad here, what he's saying is, is when God looks at us, he looks, because he's fashioned us individually, he still judges us and admonishes us on the basis of the standard of his holiness and righteousness and the way that we, you know, do not come up to it. So everybody is evaluated fairly at the same standard. But for sinners counseling sinners, it's important that we, if we're going to enter into uh, this, this counseling conversation, and try and help this person, it is important that we treat them as individuals. So we are not the dispassionate psychologist or psychiatrist. 
Okay? The, the admonition, or rather the, the, the training that they have as psychologists is don't feel sympathy or empathy. You know, make sure there's a professional distance between you and the counselee. That is not where the Christian counselor is coming from. We are coming from Galatians 6 territory. Okay, let each bear one another's burdens. Okay, <laughs> we are helpers uh, of each other on the road. Okay, it doesn't mean, then we'll get to this, but it doesn't mean that we carry their burden on our shoulders, all of what they're doing, but it does mean that we, uh, we're going to help them to make that burden lighter. Maybe even with God's help, go away. And we can do that by uh, listening as somebody who cares, as somebody who really is sympathetic. And you will find also this, because of the trials that you have been through, because of your experiences, there are going to be people that speak to you and you're going to be able to help them by... Partly by digging into the repository that you have of your own experiences with God and His providence in your life. So that means you're going to be sharing something about yourself. Because it's not like the counselor is, um, is speaking, you know, he's, he's talking down to the counselee. They're on the same level. They're both in need of God's help. They're both dependent upon God. The counselor is simply helping the counselee with their problems. Maybe down the road, somebody else will have to help the counselor because counselors, just because they're counselors, doesn't, doesn't mean that, that they don't have to receive counsel down the road, does it? So the approach is very different because of our understanding of individuality. Having said that, and as this passage indicates, although people are individuals, some things are the same for all people in all places. Okay, Some things people just have in common. The big thing that everybody you'll ever meet down here has in common with you is sin. All right? Which means that if they come to you and they have a problem and they are blaming, say, you know, their husband or they're blaming their children or they're blaming their boss at work or, you know, whatever they're doing. The, the, remember Rebecca from that um, interview a couple of weeks ago? She was blaming the fact that her grandmother had the inclination to uh, to addiction to alcohol. So it was a disease, yes? Um, when, you, when you have that with people, you've got to say, no, actually the big problem is sin. And you're a sinner. So what we're going to be dealing with in these counseling sessions is actually for most of them, most of it is your sin. How about that? 
We'll be dealing with your sin. But I'm, I'm helping you or trying to help you as a fellow sinner who has been saved by the blood of Christ and um, who is counted righteous in Christ but still struggles with sin. So I'm just as much in need of, of uh, the scriptural admonition as, as you are. But you, because your life's in a mess right now, you need to heed this. You need to pay attention to this. You need to be zeroed in on what God has for you. And so, please, again, understand you're dealing with sinners. You're dealing with sin. I'll talk about original sin um, at another time. I do want to come back to it. That's number seven on your outline. But um, let's just pass on to number eight which speaks about people's lives that are a mess. Okay? They're a mess often when they come to you for counseling. A person doesn't usually come to, for counseling when everything's going fine. They come to counseling because they are at the end of their tether. Okay? And they're desperate. Things are a real mess. So let's get rid of this. All right. There's a big mess. <laughs> now, this mess could be quite easily cleared up. Some people will come to you for counseling. You will listen to them. You will apply what Scripture says. They will heed it. They'll go away. Their problem will go away too. An example of that might be anxiety. Okay, some people, they're anxious, they don't know where to turn, they, they're not sure what to do. You might point them to uh, Philippians chapter 6, uh, verse 9, you'll be anxious for nothing but at everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and uh, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. So, So you might... Point them there, expound it, explain it to them. Again, uh, is it First Peter 5, 7? You know, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. And you explain that and say, look, do you understand that, that God doesn't want you to carry this around? He'll carry it for you. Which means the, what you're worrying about, what you're anxious about, don't be anxious about, let him worry about it. For some people, all you need to do is point them there, remind them of that, and you'll be amazed. They'll they'll go out of your office and they'll be fine. Because they're learning to depend on God in that way. That's what they needed. Other people, many people, uh, you're going to have to unravel the spaghetti. You remember the old TV sets? 
uh, you know, you go, went behind them and there's a bunch of, it just looked like a whole pile of spaghetti back there, didn't it? You know, which goes to which. And of course, when you were, got a new one and you're trying to plug it in, you just made a complete mess of things, or at least I did. Um, trying to figure out which goes, you know, what goes where. So, so often people's lives are like that. You just can't make any sense of it. You know, what you have to do is you have to unravel the spaghetti to get to where the problem really is. Okay. So you can understand it. So they can understand it. And what seems to them to be, and maybe to you at first, but but always to them, it's going to be like this, you know? They come to you like this. What your job is, is to kind of get hold of the strand and kind of unfurl it and unknot it. Okay? What appears to them to be a myriad of problems that are pressing in on them and overwhelming them are actually usually the same with the spaghetti, you know, and the the unwiring something or getting a knot out of um, somebody's hair or something. You know, it's usually maybe two or three strands. And you, you isolate them, you locate them. There may be another strand there, but, but you've located the main three. And if you deal with them, you're going to go a long way to help that person. All right? So their life is, is in a mess. Um, different things, you know. So a person's past. I'll use, keep using red. How might a person's past mess them up, particularly if they've been functioning in this independent way and they've been, because of that, their will has been making wrong decisions because their character has been informed by their past. How, can you give me some examples of, of how a, a person's past might get them all messed up like that? Okay, that's all right. So, let's say uh, sexual abuse. I'll come back and deal with abuse, by the way, later on, because there's abuse and abuse. One of them is abuse, one of them is abuse. Okay? Um, but yes, is there something else? Yeah, just, just, yeah, just seeing. Okay, witnessing. Say violence or, you know, whatever. And again, some people, it might, I mean, they're, they're upset by it, but it might not turn their world upside down. So one child, it might not turn their world upside down. Another child's more sensitive, it might. Do you see? So a little bit of, uh, Paul participation here. Um, so my dad left home when I was 13. Okay, he wasn't even before he left. Um, I remember going to school one day, came back, and he'd gone. Okay, um, but even when he was at home, he wasn't much of an interactive dad. He played soccer with me a few times. Um, 
you know, kind of boxing a, a little bit. And as he was a boxing champion, that wasn't uh, <laughs> much fun, usually. Um, but he wasn't, he just wasn't a close person, you know, and his dad wasn't close to him. Um, and so, you know, when he left, I didn't see him a great deal. I do remember um, him coming to see me about a week after he'd left, and my mum had said that, you know, he's gone, and so on. And he drives up in this new car. It wasn't much of a car, but he drove up in it. And he kind of just got me inside the car and just pointed out the different things in the car. And I'm thinking, yeah, I know about that, but I'm not really interested in that right now. Like, Are you going to talk to me about why you've gone? Okay? And what's going to happen in the future? No, he didn't. Okay? Now... Um, various, various things, but, um, one of the things, my dad didn't, didn't give us any money, didn't give my mum any money. She had four kids, okay, one of them was just three, and, um, she had no, she didn't have a driving license, and she didn't have a job, okay, so we lost our home, and uh, we were very close, the kids were very close uh, to being put in child homes, in, in, into care, okay? My mum had to lift herself up by boot sp- uh, straps. Uh, she found a local job. She would cycle to work. Uh, she got a better job after about a year, but it was um, 10 miles away. So she would cycle every day, 10 miles there, work eight hours, cycle ten miles back every single day. Okay? Um, obviously she was really tired and so on, so uh, often we just had to fend for ourselves, you know, and there wasn't much to eat or and so on. I had to wear, um, you know, clothes from just the school hand-me-down, you know, locker. <laughs> So my, my, everyone knew, you know, that we didn't have any money and so on. And, um, no money at home. So not a lot of food at home. Um, it was a very difficult time. I was the kind of a kid that was very sensitive. Okay. Even though I wasn't particularly close to my dad, my world just exploded. You know, because there was a sense of, of at least calm and predictability and, uh, sameness in my life and some, you know, good experiences because I was an outside kid. I like playing soccer and stuff like that. Um, and that all just went away. And just at the time when I turned 13 and we'd moved from the south of England into uh, what's called the Fenlands of England, where it's just flat. Um, and just, you know, the people are kind of weird. <laughs> just a bit strange, uh, Fenlanders. So, so I just felt in, in every way that my, my world had just changed utterly and I was left in this situation, um, alone. My mum wasn't at home, um, I would walk 
it's about four or five miles to school every day and, and walk back. Uh, my two sisters were both attractive and so they both had boyfriends and they were popular and so on and so forth. And, and here's me and, you know, I'm just me. And I'm shy, a very shy person as well. So, so I just go in on myself. Do you see? And, um, so I got depression from about the time I was 13 up until probably I was in my late 20s, say that's about 29, something like that. And when I, when I talk about that, and I'll talk about the depression later on, but, but when I talk about that, I mean, you don't understand depression unless you've had it, okay? It's not just feeling sad or down, okay? It's feeling like um, the world is two-dimensional. It's three-dimensional to everybody else, but it's two-dimensional to you, okay? Um, everybody else is in color. You're in black and white, okay? It's a very odd kind of situation that you deal with all the time. Um, so, um, you know, that that's my past. Um, people have these kinds of, of difficulties, okay, in their lives, these, these pains that they, they uh, travel around. I really wanted to die many times. I really wanted to, um, you know, I just uh, wouldn't bother me if I didn't wake up the next morning. Um, but for years and years and years, I cried myself to sleep every night. I mean, years and years. I'm talking about like 12, 15 years. And was miserable. So... So, a person's past, you see, can affect the different mess that they're in. Now, with me, I said I internalized things, do you see? Because I was a very shy person, I wasn't confident, I'm still not very confident, okay? It's just the way that I am. So, um, so with that going on, if if I'd have had biblical counsel back then, I would have had to, um, or would have hoped to have had a counselor who could have started to understand what my mess was. He would have had to have drawn it out of me. He would have had to have got me to, to try to analyze it myself so I could describe it. I felt it, but it was hard to talk about. And this is the way that it is often with with people, people that have been abused. Normally they're in, a, in denial. Sexually abused, often they, they just try and blot it out. Okay? They blot it out. And they don't, it's too painful, they don't want to talk about it. And it's not It's not very often either that, that they have decided, okay, I'm not going to think about this anymore, and I'm just going to blot it out. It's not usually as... as Simple as that. Often it's just, they have to in order to cope. In order to get on with their lives. Do you see? And they, they teach themselves to do it. Just by getting on with life and, and leaving that behind. Until it catches up with them. Do you see? Maybe they have to deal with it. So a person's past, um, 
has to be understood. Uh, your past doesn't define you, particularly not in Christ. That's that's very very important. Okay, very important that you don't you you don't allow a person to define themselves by their past. Okay, what does Paul say in First Second uh, Corinthians chapter five? He talks about that the old man has passed away, the new. Sorry, the, the, the renewed man is, is renewed day by day. Isn't he? No, no, I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> passing two different verses there. But, but he's renewed. Okay? In Philippians chapter 3, he says, uh, I, don't, I don't look behind, I press on toward the mark of the high calling of, in Christ Jesus. You've got to get a person to press on. Can't do anything about the past. That's what God doesn't want you living in the past. Press on, move on. Okay, that's the way forward in that situation. Okay, another way that a person uh, may be messed up or will be messed up is habits. Now, what do I mean by habits? You know, we we might say, okay, so smoking's a bad habit, and partying, and um, you know, whatever it might be. This just these different things that we do. But but I'm talking about habitual ways of uh, of living and thinking. That's really what I'm talking about here. And there, I'm I'm more concerned about. Um, these kinds of things. So we might, we might, uh, say that a person has developed a habitual way of lying. Okay? Or deceiving. And I always spell these IEs or EIs wrong. Hopefully that's right. Deceiving people. I got it? Thank you. They're just, that's the way they operate. And maybe, yes, their past, their circumstances, they've had to learn to do that. Maybe just stay out of trouble if they've come up at a, a rough part of town. But it's a habit. A habit of deceit, a habit of lying. And so they get into a, a relationship, they get married, and they start lying to their wife. Okay? That's not gonna wash. And then there's trouble, you know, because of that, okay? And then I can't trust you. And if I can't trust you, then that, you know, comes between them, of course, you see? So a habit of lying, a habit of of uh, just putting themselves first, me first. A lot of people like this, particularly... In America, because American culture has actually promoted this way of thinking. Okay, where it's me first. It's about me. It's about the way I look. It's about, um, you know, the way I come across. It's, it's, it's all this superficial stuff. Um, I know I'm a Brit and I know that we've definitely got our own problems. So don't think that, that in saying this, I'm, I'm not, uh, I couldn't, just as well critique the Brits, but here we are in the States. So, 
Um, but there is a, a, a fine book written by Os Guinness, who is, he's another Brit who now lives in America and lived in America for 30 years or so. And uh, it's written to evangelical Christians and it goes by the title Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. And the opening chapter he talks about is uh, just talking to this this woman who's, you know, obviously very, very fit, very attractive and, and so on. And she wants to talk to him about her physical fitness, you know, about how important it is to be fit and healthy and so on. And his response is that, well, I'm British, I don't see things that that way. It's not that important to me. You know, I'm more concerned about the mind, actually, than these superficial things. It's not that exercise and so on is not important, but in America, very often it defines a person. Okay? I mean, the women, and the guys too, they work out so they can be happy with the way they look. You, you see? Because they're concerned about the way they look more, and that's more important than anything else. And they will give time and effort to that. And they may be Christians, but they're not going to give a great deal of time and effort to the Bible. Or to these other things, do you see? So they've got these habits. Um, that they, they have. This me, this me idea, uh, is perhaps even, uh, even more clearly seen in the fact that, uh, years ago people used to come to a church and they used to sit on plain wooden pews. And they wouldn't even think twice about it. And they wouldn't, they'd come to a church and they wouldn't be really concerned about the decor. And they wouldn't expect to come in and be, you know, pampered and, and, uh, have all of these, you know, bright colors around and just to make you feel good and happy and zippy and, and all of that. Um, that's just not what churches were. Yeah? The church wasn't for them. Church, the church building was built for the worship of people who came to, to worship God, and that was it. You don't worry about that stuff, okay? Nowadays, you you know, a, a Christian comes with all kind, a list of all kinds of things when they come to church, okay? Just like they are when they go shopping at Walmart, that's what they're like when they go shopping for churches. Okay, do you have this for me? Do you have the right, very important, do you have the right music? Okay, do you have comfortable pews? Do you have the right Sunday schools? You know, do we, do, is the preacher cool? Is the youth minister cool? Is, uh, you know, this guy, you know, is he, is he preached about sin too much? Because you preach on sin too much, I don't want. I don't want. To, I want a, an affirming mess, message. I want a, something that makes me feel good for the rest of the week. Yeah, you guys don't know what I'm talking about, do you? <laughs> but guys, that's our modern church, evangelical church. Okay, and so people have been 
they have these habits when they look for a church or when they go to a church, even when they listen to sermons. Okay, they're listening to for the positive message. So, you know, there are not many sermons from the book of Job nowadays, okay? Because there's not much positive in there. One Puritan by the name of Joseph Carroll, um, he preached on the book of Job for 33 years. I have his commentary. It's 12 volumes, okay? It's good stuff, too. But why did why did the crowds go and listen to... To, uh, no, it's 25 years, I think. Why, why did they go and listen to Joseph Carroll for 25 years preaching on the same book? Because they had different expectations about the Word of God. Because in preaching on Job, he went all over the Bible. Okay? Uh, he was be- beaten in that by a man called William Gouge, uh, who preached on Hebrews for 33 years. The book of Hebrews. I have his sermon notes in a big volume, you know, stands, it's about three times the size of this. His outlines, okay? Good stuff. Good stuff. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not recommending that either, but what I'm saying is that people had developed good habits uh, when they entered the church. They, they went there with an expectation that they were servants of God, listening to the word of God. It had authority over them. Nowadays, Christians have bad habits. And that's an important thing, because if a, if a person uh, is a Christian, they've got uh, this me too, um, not me too, me first, excuse me, me first mentality, hey, you gotta, you got to break that habit of thinking. Because that mentality may well be part and parcel of why their marriage is going to pot. Do you see? Selfishness. Well, that is, uh, of course, a habit. <laughs> a habit of, of, of the self. And we're definitely in the, the period of the self, aren't we? But what about wrong desires? Wrong desires. You know, we're warned about that in scripture. Uh, illicit lusts and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, with guys, as we've said before, pornography is an epidemic. Not just in the unsaved com- community, but in the saved community. And often with pastors. Often with pastors. Why? Well, because pastors have, you know, I mean, I have a, an office, I have a, a computer, I don't have a problem with pornography, so I don't mind talking about this, but a lot of the time there's nothing to stop a person going and viewing pornography. It's just a few taps of the keyboard. Do you see? And then the down that, in that, in that, ugh, that mess. And it can be, and it's a habit that they, they form, or a habit of looking at, at women, or a habit of, of just thinking of, of women maybe as things, because that's what pornography does. It just turns women into things. Okay? So, we have to watch for these wrong 
desires. Covetousness is another huge one. I want that job. I want that house. I want that car. And I'm going to, you know, sacrifice to have it. Okay? And you will bypass the will of God for your life in order to get those things that you're coveting. Uh, bitterness, unforgiveness. So a person's been wronged and they let a root of bitterness sprout up in their lives. And in doing that, they've got a habit of bitterness in their lives and after 10, 20 years, they're a bitter person. It's on their face. It's in their voice. So maybe they've got bitterness down there. When you're counseling somebody, you can often pick up, if you let them speak enough, you can pick up on bitterness. um, Anger. Another last one here. Erroneous thoughts, and I'll write that down. Erroneous thoughts or ways of thinking, patterns of thought. Okay? You're just thinking wrong about stuff. You need to think right. Your, your worldview is wrong. Okay? The, 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 uh, lens that you're using to see the world and see yourself, it's all wrong. So you're seeing the world wrong. And because you're seeing the world wrongly, okay? You're not seeing it, you're not seeing reality and therefore, um, you know, you need to see things as God sees them. So a person may come in and they've just got the wrong idea about what this whole creation stuff's about, you know, what they're here for. Very important that we start to unravel this mess by pinpointing the different things or combinations of things that are in that person's life. Okay, so at first you're just just listening to them. Just let them talk, tell you what the problem is. That might be the problem, and it might not. It might be a symptom, but it may not be the problem. Yes? You see, when a person comes in and their lives all messed up, this is the symptom. Or symptoms. These are the symptoms. You know, they can't sleep at night. They get angry. They're worried all the time. Um, you know, or they're depressed or whatever it might be. These are symptoms of things. What you've got to do is you've got to get behind this and see what is, what's caused this. What habits of thought, what Ways of operating, okay, have caused this mess. Because just one or two things, you know, it starts off just one or two uh, things, entertaining a little bit of lust, entertaining a little bit of bitterness or unforgiveness, okay, entertaining a wrong view of mankind, for example, that we're all good people, <laughs> okay? These things, if life goes wrong, they can really balloon up into major Problems in a person. All right. Any uh, questions on any of that? Yes.
Yes, they're labels. Yeah, you need to listen to them. You need to, to you know, if they're a neat freak, for example, well, you have to ask, why? Okay? Why do you think you're a neat freak? Why? Because, and they might say, well, I don't know, it's just, you know, if I see something out of place, it just drives me nuts. Okay, why does it, why do you think it drives you nuts? Okay? Wouldn't, for example, it wouldn't drive me nuts, so, so, um, it, it wouldn't drive God nuts. So why do you think it drives you nuts? You see, you gotta try and get them to think through it, to analyze it. Okay? They've gotta think through it. Cause usually it's just, they're just thinking of, this drives me nuts. And that's as far as they go. Does it matter? If, um, you know, that, that, uh, cup and saucer are unwashed at the end of the night. Can it wait until the morning? Okay. Does it matter? Well, yes, it matters because, yeah, but, but then we need to understand what really matters because you're making that a, a major thing. But let's think about what the major things are. Okay, you know, for example, you have um, a child who um, is in intensive care. Then does it matter? Okay, or, you know, you've just lost your job. Whatever it might be. Um, you have a relative coming round who you know is just a, an obnoxious so-and-so. They're coming around. What, what are the, um, things that really matter? What does God want you to focus on? That cup and saucer or, or something that's going to help you in the situation? And what it does is that it helps them to evaluate, okay, idols in their heart. Because really when it comes down to it, OCD is all about pride. Okay, it's all about pride. It's all about selfishness. It's all about often selfishness and pride is often that behind it is, is insecurity. Okay? I have to do that because actually I'm a controlling person all over the place. It's not just with the, the with that. I try and control everything. So you're trying to play God. You're not letting God be God. You're not putting faith in God. You're trying to be God. You're not trusting at all. Okay? The the lack of trust is fueling your pride. Do you see? It's, It's just your independence gone into overdrive. And, and try and get them to come at it and see it in a different way. Um, give you an example. So recently I was talking to a person, and uh, this is a person who has made a big mess of his marriage and a big mess of his relationship with his son. And um, here's a person who, if somebody leaves a light bulb on, leaves a light on, okay, 
he will track that person down and he will say, go and turn that light off right now. That's, I mean, it's a huge deal. If somebody leaves the fridge door open for more than about 10 seconds, okay, he say, close the fridge door, you, that's electricity. Okay? So I had to point out to him, I said, so, okay, so how much is it, you know, and how much does it cost to have that light bulb on? Let's say that light bulb stayed on for um, 10 hours a day. How much would it cost? You and your bill. So, you know, just how much would it cost? Would it cost maybe another $10 a month? Not even that. How much? You just said a couple of dollars probably. So for a couple of dollars a month, okay, you are going to put a distance between you and your relationships, the people that you love. It's worth it to you. Two bucks. It's worth two bucks a month to you to wreck your relationship with those that you say you love. There's something wrong here, isn't there? So you know what I told him to do? I said, I want you to go home and I, I, the next person who opens the fridge door, I want you to keep it, uh, let them keep it open for as long as they like. And if it's there for two minutes, you let them keep it open. Don't say a thing. Don't do it ever again. And if, you know, they forget about it, go walk up casually, close the door casually and don't say a thing. But don't ever make the fact that the the fridge door is open, don't ever make that something that destroys your relationships. You've been doing this, and look where it's got you. It's got you here, and you're miserable. He says he he wants his life to end because his son hates him, his wife doesn't. I said, so what are we going to do? We have to, you know... Focus on what matters. And a light bulb doesn't matter and a cup and saucer don't matter. And all the neighbors are coming around, you know, we have to just go crazy and get mad at everybody to clean the house up. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't want to upset people. You don't want to drive wedges between your relationship and the people that you love. You don't want people to remember, yeah, whenever... Somebody's coming round, mum turns into a bear or dad, you know, gets angry or whatever. We don't want them to be able to predict you like that. Much better to remember, for them to remember that, you know what, we just are what we are. We are who we are. Pick up a little bit. You know, just pick up the main things for for five minutes before they come. Because what really matters is relationship, isn't it? It's not in the New Testament, but I'm sure after um, the disciples had supped with the Lord, you know, that that Jesus was not saying, okay, well, who's going to tidy this mess up, you know? I can't go, I can't possibly go on teaching with this mess around me. Wasn't concerned with that. 
Any other question on this? Yes. No, they're, they're, they're labels. Pardon me? They're labels. So are those, uh, so there are modified mental illnesses. Yes. That's correct. Yes. Some people will question whether schizophrenia is a mental disorder, but there are mental illnesses, definitely. But mental illnesses are physical. Exactly. Okay, there's pathology. Okay, that you can trace, you can do test. Okay, you do a brain scan or you do, you know, do some blood test or something like that to determine that there's something wrong. But when we're talking about these supposed disorders, there's no test that you can do. There's no pathological scientific evidence for it, do you see? So it's not the same thing. You're not dealing with science here, you're dealing with, you know, we're we're trying to figure this out, whatever it is. So something like, okay, so I've heard, you know, terms like borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, these types of things. So you're saying that those types of behaviors, I mean, that you're trying, so those aren't mental illnesses according to... No, they're not mental illnesses. Okay, no, narcissistic personality disorder, bipolar, manic depression, so these are not mental illnesses, no. If it's a mental illness, it's the brain illness. Okay? There's pathology for it. There's no pathology for this. Okay? This is behavioral. Okay? And, and just labeling it a disorder is just the, the psychological way of trying to sound scientific, but there's no science behind it. So what you find is that when the DSM, we're now at the DSM-5, uh, when they come out, they, they have new disorders. And they get rid of old... You see, homosexuality used to be a disorder. That wouldn't wash nowadays, would it? Okay? So we have we get rid of old disorders. Well, if it was a disorder based on science... But it's not. It's not scientific. Do you see? It's nonsense. It's nonsense, honestly. Disorder. You know... Um, what is a disorder? When you think about that, what is a disorder? Disorder, t- where's the norm? Where's the norm? Well, sure, we can understand that, that somebody who's, who's acting completely erratically, okay, that we might say there's some kind of disorder in the way that they're functioning. And we might have to, to inquire as to why that is. But most people who are diagnosed with disorders, they're perfectly normal. Maybe they're depressed, maybe they've got OCD, maybe they, um, or what people call OCD, you know, they're just perfectionistic. Uh, you know, whatever that, that issue is. Is it a disorder or is it a sin? Is the problem the head or is the problem the heart? Hmm? I'll, I'll do more about, about this later on, you know, when I've already quoted psychologists. If you want to, to kind of shortcut this a little bit, 
I'll write this guy's name on. Go up to YouTube. I think I'm spelling his name right here. Dr. Peter Bregin. He's a psychiatrist. Just go on YouTube, put his name in. Watch some of his 10-minute videos. Yes. I don't have the information right in front of me, but I can tell you that there is in in all of the kind of correlations that they're they've done and so on. Um, there is a lot of misinformation, a lot of myth around PTSD. I will try and get you the information. I don't have it in front of me, so I'm not going to try, try and quote it from memory. Um, but the stats that, that, that have been scientifically done, that don't add up. They don't add up. Okay, another question. Yes. Yes. So when we find their habits or our own, yes. to discover what how that habit came to be, can it be a coping mechanism? Yes. But see, coping mechanism you use in psychological language. Sorry. No, no, so no. <laughs> Uh, you don't have to be sorry. I'm just pointing it out because it's entered into our vernacular. Okay? But yeah, okay. We'll... But it, it could also be um, something that you saw and, and, I mean, as a child, like if I was a, I, I was a daughter, I am a daughter, so if I saw oh. my mother doing it, it would be the same thing. It would just be trans, I mean, just something that I saw happen. Yeah, yeah. Habit, yeah. My mother's yeah. Although again, when you actually track that, um, it's, it's not foolproof. You know, one son or one daughter might be utterly different. Another one might be more susceptible to that. But there's a great deal of truth to it. The Puritans, their advice about choosing a wife and a husband was uh, just, you know, be dispassionate. Okay, what's the mum like? What's the dad like? Okay, what are their characters? What are their characteristics? Because if some of the characteristics that you see in them, you might see in the man you're going to marry, for example. What are his friends like? What are her friends like? What are they like when they think you're not looking? Okay? What are they like when things don't go their way? Okay, these kind of things that you can look at and uh, substantiate, you see. And that, some of that, you see, is kind of dovetails into that. What are their, what's their mum like? If their mum is overly fastidious, if their mum is, um, uh, you know, brusque, if she is uh, not submissive, okay, then take a note of that because maybe the one you're going to marry, maybe she's not going to be submissive either. Do you see? So, is is the man domineering? Okay, there's there's the dad. Is he domineering? Does he take his wife for granted? Well, 
if you're going to marry, you know, that guy's son, make sure that he's very different than his dad, you see, in that area. So yes, there's something to that. That's just, just, you know, learned behavior. Evil communications corrupt good manners and sometimes we can't get out of those circumstances until we grow up. <laughs> yes. Yes, they can. Yes, that's actually very good. Um, they, uh, this is a big question, so I can't answer it in full. Maybe we can do it another time. But do- this is why doctrine is so important. Okay? Uh, again, um, according to polls, which really don't mean anything because they ask terrible questions most of the time, but According to many polls, um, the most important thing for many churchgoers is the sermon. Okay? It's like 80% of them say, well, no, we go for the preaching. Okay? Well, if that's true, how come so many Christians are under so much bad preaching? Well, because, yes, they go for the preaching. They just don't go for the truth. They don't want doctrine. Do you see? They want anecdotes. They want jokes. They want stories. They want feel-good stuff. All right? Well, um, somebody like that, who's, the doctrine's, doctrine's not important. They, they, um, I'll, I'll, I'll get onto this at another time, but they will read um, what's that devotional that sold millions? Um, Jesus Calling. They'll, they'll, they'll read Jesus Calling and uh, they'll think, they won't even think twice about the fact that she claims these are the words of Jesus. If they're the words of Jesus, they're equal to this. You can't have words of Jesus that are not God's words. And yet she's saying they're not God's words. That's not possible. That's not Christian doctrine. That's heresy. Okay? She's either, they're either Jesus' words, in which case they're inspired, in which case she's saying that Jesus' calling is on a par with scripture, watch out, or she's lying to you. She's lying. By saying, these are Jesus' words, they're just not inspired. Do you see? Well, a person who, that's the culture that we're in now, a, a person who accepts that is not a doctrinally solid Christian. And I'm, if there's any of you that have, have bought into that, I'm not lambasting you for it, okay? Just throw it in the trash. Um, <laughs> you don't need it. This is the word of God. She doesn't have the word of God. Okay? Um, but that's an example, do you see, of, um, of people's theology or lack of theology, lack of solid theology. Well, what it does is it makes them willful. Okay? Yeah, I mean, in other words, why, 
the whole point of that woman, Sarah Young, in even writing that book was that scripture wasn't enough for her. She, she longed for something more. Do you see? I mean, she's got a master of divinity, but that doesn't mean anything, by the way. Okay, I know lots of people with uh, master's degrees in theology and so on who don't know their Bibles. You don't go to a seminary to learn your Bible. I hope you know that. Um, well, not really, you know, hardly ever, actually, unless they made reading the Bible compulsory. <laughs> which they don't at seminaries nowadays. So um, so she's she's got the qualifications, okay, but clearly her doctrine is all over the place. Certainly her doctrine of revelation, which is why we're going to deal with scripture next week. Okay, the authority of the scriptures. And does that mess you up? Oh yeah, because you're trying to as a Christian counselor, Christ, you know, biblical counselor, this is it. This is the authority. If you've got a person who uh, practices these other things, like this waiting on God for God to tell them something, you know, then they're not under the authority of this book. You're going to be in trouble because they're not going to listen to you until you deal with that issue. Okay? Until they bring all of their mind into submission of this book and their will into submission of this book, there's always going to be this loophole. Yeah, I know that says that, but, you know, do you see? So that's an example, just one example uh, of it. Um, the other one, like the health and wealth stuff, for example, yeah, and the person's disappointed. Jesus has not blessed me. My life is really hard. It stinks. Okay, right now. It really hurts right now. I don't think God cares about me right now. Well, you know, you can go through that, but the whole the problem there is that yeah, God's got you in this situation. But you're where God wants you to be right now. You've got to be content. I've learned in all situations therewith to be content. And Paul, some of those situations were not nice situations. Especially as he wrote that from a Roman prison. So yes. Well, I'm just gonna, I was just going to ask. I, I know in conversations like, for example, Jesus Calling. She also wrote a book, Jesus Calling for Children. Of course. Yes. Okay. But and then, or perhaps a book like The Shack. Um, yes. And just in conversation with other Christians, there is, I mean, man, my own personal experience. If you give a view contrary to their view, which is very accepting. Mm. I mean, you can get a lot of pushback from that. So I'm Tell me about it. Biblical, <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking in a biblical counseling setting, then, of course, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have the Word of God to, um, you know, be the authority, but uh, you're still the person delivering it. Mm. And so I, I just wonder if that's going to be challenging for Yes, that's why we have to, that's why next week we'll deal with the sufficiency of scripture. I'm actually teaching on that this Wednesday as well at the, uh, at Agape, but, um, the sufficiency of scripture, it is the most abused doctrine in evangelicalism, without any doubt. Yes, without any doubt. Um, 
but uh, we'll deal with it with that next week. Yeah, the the you have to get them to a situation where they will accept the authority of Scripture without question. Now that's different than accepting all of your interpretations. They are perfectly within their rights to question your interpretation if they think your interpretation is not what the Bible's saying. Okay? As long as it's not, you're not trying to get out of clearly of what, what it's saying about their sin. But as far as the authority of Scripture, yes. If it says it, you convince me that says it, that's it. That's the end of it. That's where you have them, you need to get them. If you cannot get them there, just end the, end the session. You're wasting your time. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. I hope that that was helpful. Next week we're going to be looking at the authority of scripture. So we'll be in, uh, in part two. I do want to do this. Um, I, I, I need to revisit the human heart. Okay, we have to, to really deal with the, the heart as well. You know, it's deceitfulness and so on, um, as part of this, this issue. So we'll spend, uh, I'll try and spend just about half an hour on the heart and then we'll move on to the authority of God in the scriptures.